Please listen carefully. Welcome to Christians in the Public Square with your hosts Cole Bennett and Scott Self. Hi, Scott. Hey, Cole. This is the beginning of a podcast by two brothers. We like to say brothers from another mother. We do. But that's probably copyrighted. The purpose of this podcast is to discuss what it means to be a Christian who lives as a member of the state in which he or she exists in ways that comport with biblical teachings, comport with Christianity, comport with the way, Mm -hmm. however you want to describe it, how to be a good Christian and a good citizen at the same time. I would say this discussion came about because many times those things are in alignment with each other, and many times they're not, and it's hard to know what to do with that. Yeah, I'm I'm with you, and I think the other thing is, Cole— there's sometimes you sometimes get the the idea that being a Christian means you're a good citizen, that it's inexorable, right? And I'm not sure that um, we always have the faculty to understand the relationship between those two things. And in our lifetime, especially, it's been really those two things have been mixed quite a bit uh-huh. in every bit of every medium of rhetoric that we have been exposed to. They've been mixed sometimes together, and sometimes they have been mixed to highlight the contrast between them. And the discussions that we have had um, have brought us to a place where we think having a podcast would be a good idea. Mm. So let's introduce each other. Okay. Do you want me to introduce you? (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen. No, I don't. In the red corner. I think you're in the red corner. Shilling for the libertarians. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes. Yeah, so my my best friend is Cole Bennett. He is a libertarian, but he's also a good person. <laughs> I don't know if I like the way that sounds. And my best friend over here, my bro from a different mother, is Scott Self, who is a self-described socialist libertarian, which is different from a plain libertarian, or I should say a mainstream libertarian, in ways that he will describe. It's also different from being a socialist. That's right. Yeah. Those are very different things. And so before we started this, in fact, let's just start here. Okay. Before we started this podcast, you were explaining to me how earlier in your life you identified with what you understood to be the socialist position, Mm -hmm. um, socialist qua socialist, and you have moved as you have gotten older, into a socialist libertarian place. So why don't you tell us what that means? The the frustration with these uh, is that you're always borrowing from someone else's definition, right? So the semantic features of these can get difficult, I think. But but for the most part, the difference for me between being a socialist and a socialist libertarian is um, socialism, from my experience, has tended to focus primarily upon social structures and social systems and um, seeing those as ends in and of themselves. And as I've matured, I've begun to believe that the actual focus or the the actual beneficiary of social systems should be the individual, not society. So if society is flourishing but an individual is not flourishing, to me that's a problem. Um, For a socialist, if society is flourishing, 
the individuals must by nature be flourishing. And so that's not really a, there's not really much of a discussion about separating the individual from society. But I think there's a value in doing that. How would you separate the definition you just gave from a typical capitalist argument, which is a system that allows individuals to flourish also promotes a nation who flourishes? Yeah, so to me, um, the, the more you move toward the libertarian side, the more um, the liberty of the individual becomes impetus for society's benefits, Right. So if everybody is free, then society is free and everything is great. I'm not sure that that works from my point of view. I'm not convinced that that works. And I do believe that there are times in which social structure needs to be put in place to preserve the liberty of an individual. Beyond the executive and judicial branches of government. Oh, yeah. So beyond police, police and law and courts. It could be a lot of different kinds of institutions like okay. churches. Um, it could be, um, you know, and, and, and frankly, there are other, sometimes for better and for worse, there are institutions that weigh um, uh, for and against the individual liberties of an individual. That sounds redundant. <laughs> I'm a member of the NARA, the National Association of Redundancy Association. <laughs> <laughs> I think many of us are members of that. Okay, so I want to I want to push farther to make sure that okay. our audience understands because it sounds v- very close to the free market argument, which is probably a consequence of your being a socialist libertarian rather than just a pure socialist, right? Right. right. Because that the free market argument is if we are free to pursue our own self-interests and and free to make private contracts with each other that are enforced by judicial branches and executive branches of government, and free to own land and have have land and property ownership guarded, then individuals will flourish and build wealth and create job opportunities, after which time the nation itself will build wealth. This was the Smithian argument Mm -hmm. in Wealth of Nations. And so I'm a little unclear... Uh, how you're differentiating that deeply. From my point of view, you have a great deal of faith in, and I mean that in the most generous way possible, but you have a a kind of faith in the benefit of market, right? Where I, I, from my point of view, I think the market can be one of the forces that limits individual flourishing and individual liberty. So my concern is to limit power of any structure that would um, uh, that would mitigate individual liberty. And I would include the market as one of those possible forces. Um, I would include government as one of those possible forces. Mm-hmm. I would include um, racism as one of those possible forces. Uh, anything, religion. Religion, mm-hmm. yeah, definitely. So I'm actually not convinced that the market is the... Um, is necessarily a trustworthy methodology for ensuring individual flourishing. I think where you and I tend to agree is the benefit of individual flourishing, uh, where we start to disagree and what pulls us apart um, and uh, on the spectrum has more to do with what remedies most avail the individual uh, with liberty or to liberty avail them to liberty. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Okay, so you see, if I can paraphrase and you tell mm. me if I'm right, you see a free market as a very powerful entity that can both promote flourishing and promote destruction if left unchecked. It's like a knife. Yes, okay. It can be used to carve a beautiful carving. It can be used to, to cut meat, and it can also be used to stab someone. Even when used at, as, as it is intended. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's probably we're going, where we're going to part ways. Is that- now, now, keep in mind, one of, the, th- one of the, ch- the problems on my side, Cole, is that so can government, right? Sure. I'm actually of the opinion that any, any structure, any institutionalized structure— can limit the individual liberty of a of a person. And that's a problem. I'm just willing to throw the market in with that group and any structure that mitigates power and preserves the the liberty of the individual to me is is preferable. So that would separate you from a typical or I would say a mainstream socialist because right. a socialist believes quite a bit in the sanctity of government structures. Or of social structures. Of social structures. Is yeah. What? Oftentimes, in our case, it would be the government. Right. Yeah. And so, are you interested in answering the question, if you were designing a society from scratch, I always like to, I always like to say, if you were on a cruise ship that wrecked <laughs> on an un- uninhabited island... And they all looked at you and said, please set up, set up. you're the smartest Write person here. Write the Constitution? Here. Yes. I don't know why a cruise ship would look at you and say, you're the smartest person here, but they might. <laughs> you, would, you would have to take off the clothes I know you'd be wearing, the cabana wear and so forth. But I, are you interested in saying, here's how I would design, given that resources were available to build things? And, you know, I mean, it's not, there's food on the island, in other mm-hmm. words. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> But we have to make sure that Larry doesn't st- stab Bob, right? We have to create some social order. Sure. And, and then manage the system by which we create that social order. And I think the Constitution, I'm, I'm happy with our Constitution to a certain degree. I'm, I don't bow down before it in any, but by any means. I'm somewhat skeptical of some of the some of the principles in our constitution, but one of the things I'm skeptical about is that the constitution does not envision all of the different facets of power. It only considers government or state elements of power. And to me, I think uh, having a constitution that also um, mitigates uh, capital capital and transactions and mitigates the way markets work to me would uh, preserve, potentially preserve the rights of the individual or the liberties of the individual. And what I mean by that is the checks and balances that exist within the Constitution, I think, have to be broader than just the state. Those checks and balances have to be a larger consideration than just the state. Okay, so we're back on the island. Yeah. Uh, I'm eager to hear some detail about what you might design. So... My my detail would include not only it would start with the Constitution okay. well, in our, my ideal world. Yes, it would be similar the to the United one States we have. Constitution. Oh, okay. It would be right. similar. Okay, I except was... I would also want to include 
articles that dealt with the um, uh, the distribution of coconuts okay. on the island and how that how the um, how the members of the community transact through their coconuts. Okay, so let's say there are a hundred people on the ship, and the island is easily divisible into a hundred tracts of land, and everyone gets a tract of land, but only seven people have coconut trees. You're saying there would be, you would not wait for a people to decide how to barter. You would decide how the coconuts get distributed. I'm not, I'm not so much interested in how the coconuts get distributed. I'm interested in ensuring that there is a checks and balances on those different forces. So the market will decide how the coconuts get dis- distributed, but there is something that holds the market in check because I don't trust the market to hold itself in check, and I know that's where we disagree. Yeah, okay. That's very, it's very helpful to understand that, though. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll stop grilling you then. Thank uh, you. Yes. And no, I'm, I'm fine. I, I'm happy to talk about coconuts as often as you need yeah. to. <laughs> Have you tried that coconut pancake syrup at Wailana Coffee House? Because it's good. Oh. In a moment, after I, after I let you ask me some questions, the <laughs> next question I'll ask you is, how does your faith in Christianity affect both at the abstract level mm. and perhaps at the island level? Okay. Would that be a fair way to move the conversation along? And then um, we have some some guiding uh, principles for each yeah. podcast that we want to talk yeah, about. Yeah, I think that'd be great. Yeah. Before we get to the Christian, because the Christ, how, how to be a Christian in our understanding of the best way of government involves those guiding principles. Mm. So I am a libertarian. So yeah, let me ask yeah, you, we're on, a, we're, we're on the cruise ship, and you're the one who's the smartest person. Uh, again, I don't know why you That's would be easy to imagine. <laughs> Unless you're on that ship. No. <laughs> uh, well, I, of course, the first thing you said was that labels are tricky, and I want to agree with you because I've had many people of many different political labels espouse many different things, so mm-hmm. I'm not trying to represent all libertarians here. But I believe that I believe in very minimal roles for the government. I, I have a strong belief in individual liberty that people should be utterly in charge of their property, and that includes their personal effort toward work. So if I decide to mow your yard for $20, that $20 is mine, and it should be mine to discharge as I see fit, because I, at the at the very basest level, what I have to offer the world is my time and effort. So I can sell that at a rate that I agree to with you to mow your yard, and there doesn't need to be a government telling me what a minimum wage should be or what a safe lawnmower versus a failing lawnmower that requires you to go sharpen the blade or to mm-hmm. tighten up nuts or whatever. So libertarians, um, or I should, I should say, I as a libertarian really, really believe heavily in the market ability to create flourishing at the individual and the state level. Um, I believe that personal liberty to do what I feel, for one to do what one feels to better one's own situation should be respected. 
to the degree that it does not harm another citizen with the word harm construed narrowly. That's a very important articulation of uh, are part of my articulation. So I will not have the ability to walk over and strike you with my fist because mm-hmm. that's harm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I can say things that might hurt your feelings because that still may be harmful, but it's not harm construed narrowly. I can't come over to your property and destroy it or take it back to my own house and claim it as my own. That's harm. Uh, but I can say, I don't like the color of your house, or I think your car's dumb, which I do, by the way, think your car's pretty dumb. But that that may hurt your feelings, but that is, um, that's not harm to a libertarian mm. legally. Mm. And it, you were mentioning the Constitution moments ago. I think that the United States Constitution, as I understand it, is pretty much written in a way that promotes the libertarian ideal in that, and I do not believe we are living under the intent of the Constitution in in 2016. I believe politicians on both sides have created situations where we are not free to pursue our own interests. But I think the founders of this country, uh, the founders plus following amendments, have said, you know what, this country should be one where you can pursue your own way forward without harming your neighbor to increase your standing the way you define it. So can I ask you a question? Sure. Um, <clears throat> the, if, if that's the case, um, what's going on? If the Founding Fathers and the early amenders... The Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights. Yeah, mm-hmm. if, the, if all of that was the libertarian dream... And this comports with your understanding of um, human nature and the best opportunity for flourishing. All of this, if all of this is true and it was working, why aren't we doing it anymore? I have a couple of answers. Okay. Okay. So I want to make sure I understand your question. Why have there been amendments? Why did we have, I guess my question is, did we approximate, did we get close to your um, ideal of free market libertarianism. We got close to it. Yes, the, around at, the turn of the century. Uh huh. The Industrial Revolution. Okay. At the late 1800s, we got close to it. And you why know, didn't we stay there? If it works. Okay, I'll tell you why. In my, now, if you're going to ask me to cite sources, no, I'm, I'm not. Okay, because I I can't. You can make it up. No, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> it's based on my my understanding of what happened, based on histories I've read. Mm-hmm. And inserting my opinion. Okay. That's valid. All right. So uh, our country was the place where other countries' citizens came for opportunity. The Industrial Revolution in the mid to late 1800s and even at the turn of the century saw people flocking here from other countries and leaving their farms in order to work in factories because it w- it provided opportunities for them to earn a living that they were not that they did not have and one of the first things i often hear liberals say is yes and let's look at that let's look at the child labor let's look at jacob reese how the other half lives and let's look at the need for unions to have 
for unions to arise to protect workers? Well, I have a couple of thoughts about that. Um, number one, I don't think it's right. A libertarian would not agree that a miner should be forced to work in a factory. I, I, we, I would say to protect children is a job, a legitimate job of the state. Yeah, that's an interesting component of what I hear from you. And I, and I know this about you, but I think that's something that I'd like to hear you expand a little bit more because there are these instances where you believe that certain individuals, like children, their rights have to be protected by the state. Mm-hmm. Or yes. the disabled. Or we can talk about the disabled in a moment, but I, I, I think children are in their own category. Gotcha. I don't. I, I think it's okay for Tom to agree, for Tom the adult, to agree to work in the iron foundry for twelve hours a day. If if he and the foundry owner say this is the wage I will pay you to work fifteen hours a day, twelve hours a day, no lunch break or, you know, a 10-minute lunch break, or whatever. If Tom and the foundry owner agree to that, it is none of the government's business, but not Tom's son, who's 12 years old. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because Tom's son does not have a way to participate in the process of making decisions for himself the way that Tom does. And so I can yeah. understand exploiting one's children, and that's not right. Mm. So I'm not talking about that. Right. But, I, but liberals say, look at the conditions they were working in. The Triangle Shirtwaist Factory mm-hmm. um, brought attention to a, a buildings that had no codes. And when fires broke out, you know, um, what would we have done had the government not stepped in and said, you will build buildings this way, you will have doors that open, you know. And what I want to say about that is, um, you know, if, a, if, P, if I were a woman who wanted to work at a shirtwaist factory and I saw that if the building caught fire, I shouldn't work there, then, that I would be in danger, then I probably wouldn't work there. And I'm not blaming those women uh, who were there. I'm I know. not saying they were stupid. I right. I was saying at that point, multi-story buildings were, were coming on. Um, they had buildings that went up, I think, six or seven floors before the elevator was invented, mm-hmm. but people weren't willing to trudge up 12 or 15 flights. And so the I, how buildings should be built was a, regarding uh, dangers of fire, that was still being understood. And I don't think it was necessary for a government to come along and say, you can't operate a business unless you build a building this way and have doors that open this way and have windows without bars on them. I think uh, that a person can decide whether they want to take that risk or not if they are an adult. And and and, and you might think that the – would this be accurate that you would say eventually work standards would have improved because – um, companies would have to compete for workers and in order to be able to compete for the workers. So, you, so maybe the government stepped in or maybe workers organized too early and cut off this natural evolution of what would have happened within the industries? I would say that, but let me say part B about unions, okay? okay? Um, uh, this may surprise you, but I don't think 
that unions themselves are the problem when it comes to libertarians versus collective bargaining. I think anyone should be able to gather up his or her workmates and say, let's go to the administ- administration, let's go to the boss and say, if you don't change things, we're all leaving mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. The problem was that the government wrote rules that leveraged Got the it. union's advantage. Got it. So if I owned a factory and 20 of my best workers came up and said, if you don't give us a raise, we're all leaving, I would look to the work pool and see in my town if I can get 20 more. Mm-hmm. And if I could, I would fire all of them. But in a flourishing society, there wouldn't be necessarily other people I could hire. And so before those people banded together and started making demands, they would look around and see what the work supply was like. So the idea of unions and protecting workers, I think, is just fine as long as the government doesn't get involved. So your your biggest issue is not so much with institutions um, as much as it is with the state having an inappropriate level of authority over individuals by mitigating the market. That's exactly right. So your original question was, have we ever approximated? Yeah. And I would say we were really pumping on all cylinders during the Industrial Revolution. We were figuring things out in good ways uh, by looking at what was succeeding in the assembly lines versus specialized or specialized workers versus um, people who could do many different things. Mm -hmm. We were learning from bad things like buildings that burned down because Mm -hmm. they weren't built right or wiring that wasn't right. We were learning. uh, And when the stock market crashed because of government intervention, I would argue, and I can talk about that if you want, then there was a severe overreaction with the Roosevelt administration, etc. That's when we lost our way. That is when we lost our way, when FDR decided to listen to John Maynard Keynes and make decisions based on that philosophy and put them into law with the Congress and everyone else along the way. That's when we lost our way. That's the world according to Cole. That's right. Yeah. And I think many libertarians would say, yes, we were doing fine until... and, And frankly... Hoover was an interventionist as well. Sure, I understand this, yeah. Yeah, So the 20s crash was a problem of tariffs and farm problems that where the government intervened. It It was horrible. It was not merely speculation and people buying stocks and bonds uh, on future credits and on it was largely due to monetary policy and government interference. And I have citations if people want them. Nobody wants that. <laughs> let's talk about our guiding principles. Okay, let's do. Okay. Do you want to introduce these or do you want me to? I want you to. I've been talking a lot. Okay. So um, there, are, there are a couple of things that we're trying to kind of unpack how our relationship works and why we can be brothers and, and really disagree. And I think this conversation has been um, a poor example of the – amount of yelling that we're capable of doing at one another. <laughs> Fun yelling. Yeah, absolutely. Brotherly yelling. But how do you do that? Yeah. And that's actually something that interests me to a significant degree. Um, and, and I'll explain why in, in um, maybe in future iterations of this podcast. But one of the things that's important for both of us 
And uh, we've had to unpack these. It's not like we've started our friendship based upon a series of principles, but we've unpacked and tried to figure out why things seem to work in our relationship as we have these um, uh, disagreements and um, and explorations with one another. And I think the first one starts with um, trying to not start with, we don't start with foregone conclusions. Uh, Well, let me rephrase that. We try not to start with foregone conclusions. I think that can be more difficult than um, than one might admit because of number two, which is we uh, we try to admit our biases. I think sometimes our cognitive biases kind of inform some foregone conclusions. But let me talk about what I mean by foregone conclusions. We try really hard not to say. Um, I believe X, and so I'll understand history, or I'll understand um, human nature, or I'll look at things philosophically through my belief that X is right or that Y is wrong. Um, We're much more comfortable having a conversation about why X is right or why something is wrong. Um, and And I think that's something that drives our conversations. That could be frustrating to somebody who's listening in. Yes. Who believes, wait a minute, if, um, and we should understand that X is wrong, then how are, why are you interrogating it? Why are you investigating it? But I think that's necessary. Um, we try to admit our biases. I have a real bias against the market. I actually believe that it can create, um, my bias is that the market is bad, right? <laughs> right. And there are so many places where I've had to re-examine that, um, whether in conversations with you or whether in my own scholarship, I've got to re-examine my biases. Um, and the third, this one was difficult for us to explicate, that we are skeptical of data-driven research. This is hard for us to say because one could hear something entirely different, like we don't believe in numbers or we don't believe in research or we don't believe in data. That's not what we mean. It just means we're not jumping off a bridge because we read a study that says X, Y, or Z. That's right. You will not hear us often say, studies show, so therefore this is the way it is. Right. We might say, we have read some interesting studies, and the names of them, Mm -hmm. for example, are these, and they argue this, and that seems like a good argument, rather than saying, this is the way it is because studies show. Yeah, I, I... And I think we are appropriately skeptical of anybody who throws in front of us a chart, right? Right. And I think the more you understand data, the more you understand its difficulty in, um, in interpretation. I mean, there, is a, there are hermeneutical principles that are applied to interpreting data, mm-hmm. and um, they're, they're rarely clear. They're rarely clear, especially in these conversations where um, a correlation some, sometimes is interpreted as a causal relationship. My favorite example of this is the, um, the great polio scare of the 1960s. Have you heard of this? I don't know. So there was some uh, research that saw that uh, ice cream sales went up in the months of June and July, which is also when the incidence of polio seemed to onset. And so um, it became somewhat of a a national phenomenon, this fear that ice cream was causing polio. And um, because you can clearly see a strong correlation between these two incidents, the, the 
or the number of ice cream sales and the number of people getting polio. I mean, that was very clear. But uh, that causal link is probably not there. Right? It's probably, it's probably because I'm... they're eating ice cream and then going swimming. <laughs> Right? With people at the pool who have polio. Who have polio. Yes, right. right. Yeah. And even at a more simplistic level of skepticism toward data and research are questions like, well, how many people did they interview for this study? Were they, uh, was there a diversity of where they lived and how old they were? And did there need to be a diversity? So even very simple questions toward data be before we even get to the hermeneutics of interpreting them, those are important questions, and we feel it's necessary to ask them. So, another, let me give another quick example of your numbers one and two of where we, you know, we have our biases and we don't start with foregone conclusions and try to interpret the world that way. I've had, in the, in the past, my adult life, I've had people say both things to me, you know, it's hard to, I don't understand how you can be a Christian and not vote Republican, mm-hmm. and I don't understand how you can be a Christian and not vote for Democrats. Mm-hmm. So the way we boiled these down is um, there are three things that uh, kind of govern our podcast. And the first of these is sacred cows make great barbecue. <laughs> we... <laughs> We don't actually uh, worship any sacred cows. Um, we try very hard to be as um, critical of ourselves and of our biases as possible. Number two is let your flag fly proudly. Um, we will argue vigorously for a, a position or in, uh, interrogate one another from time to time, but we, it's because we expect one another to hold our flags high. And, um, and you know, I may be wrong, but that doesn't mean I don't believe something. And so um, that belief that belief should fly proudly. And um, and you are always so generous to allow me to do that. And then number three, bros before politicos. Yep. Uh, at the end of the day, it doesn't. You know, I was I was telling my wife last night because you know we'd been talking about this stuff in preparation, and I was telling her kind of the outline of today's podcast, and I said, you know. Cole and I disagree about so many things, except the most important thing. And that's really important, I think, to really identify. Uh, and, and that for us is our faith, but I don't think it only has to be our faith. I think it can also be our humanity. We belong to one another as human beings. And, um, and it, because of our faith, we understand that in a certain light and in a certain way, and I think that's valuable and I'm all in, but um, in some ways that can be understood as a trope for what's true for us as human beings. We belong to one another as human beings, and then we argue. Right, right. right. Well, we belong to each other as Christians. Right, most importantly. Right, and we belong to each other as human beings almost sounds socialist. So I'm kind of hearing something. I don't mean to be, I don't mean it that way. Okay, you mean like all humanity, I mean, people should be able to have vigorous debate. Oh, right, right, right. And have brotherly and sisterly relationships, regardless of whether they have uh, our secret sauce that I think is supposed to come with Christianity. Our membership to the way, right, as it were. Right. Yes, I see that, and I was I was drawn to. I know it's, Scott's a huge fan of the song 
on the turning away. Oh, by Pink well, anything Floyd. Pink Floyd. Sure, and that song, I've, after I knew you loved it so much, I would listen to it a lot more carefully every time I heard it. And I thought, wow, this is a socialist song. This is a song that says nothing about God or Jesus right. or no, Christianity. No, and true. says everything about we belong to each other as humans. And what I would say to that as a libertarian is, first we are Christians, and then we are choosing to place our individual wants to be connected as humans over how we feel the state should be organized. And I don't know that that's a, a care. I don't know that that's a needed or a careful. I think you jumped to the state too quickly because here's why. It's possible that that is a call to our human, to the better angels of our nature that is in no way related to in no way explicated in the context or in the motif or in the metaphor of Christianity. But just that, hey, why not take a look at what's when somebody is suffering? Why not stop ignoring it and, and try to do something good about it? And I don't know a libertarian um, who's worthy of the name who wouldn't say, it's my right to care about my neighbor. And it's okay for me to call others to charity and to, good, uh, and to goodwill. If you can do that, even absent um, being a member of the way, right? Even, even if you're not a part of the kingdom of God, you can still do that. And it's okay, from my point of view, for Gilmore to call the rest of us to do the same thing. Yeah. And now, it, if you want to go and say, but I want a barrier between that and the state, I think that's a different conversation. Okay. From what I'm trying to say. I got it. That we could... As members of the kingdom, we don't have a choice. That's part of this. And that's part of where I end up coming from so often is we don't actually have a choice in this. We have to be brothers and sisters to the world around us. We have to live out God's agape in every facet of our lives and in every relationship that we uh, engage. That's a non-negotiable. If you're going to call yourself a child of God, there are certain responsibilities that trump everything else. Having said that, you you can also, I think it's possible to say, I am not a member of the kingdom of God, but I still care about my neighbor, and I could still care about my neighbor as my brother. Um, I'm not sure exactly how I'm going to do that. I'm not sure whether I'm going to rely upon the state or upon our PTA group or who, but I'm going to care about my neighbor. It's possible. Yeah, yeah. I hear that. So to clarify, as Christians... We do not have a choice. That's it. And I think as a, you would say, as a socialist libertarian, you almost don't have a choice. Wouldn't you say that? Because I would say, as a Christian, I don't have a choice to care for my neighbor. And I am happy to obey God to do that. As a libertarian citizen, I have a choice to care or to not care. I don't know if you're saying as a socialist libertarian you have a choice to or not. I think you're saying you also, as this may be more convoluted than we want to get to. No, I, I appreciate you bringing this up because... Um, the word choice is where I'm getting... Yeah, I'm the getting choice, I, being a member of the kingdom... We don't it, have a choice. It's done. Right. Does a socialist libertarian who doesn't believe have a choice? I what don't a know. great question. I don't know. What a great question. Well, I, I think where we should turn as we kind of round the corner toward the end of our initial podcast, Scott, is to 
let people know what to expect in broad strokes coming up, mm. and then to to maybe give a broad answer to how do we see ourselves as Christian citizens in a broad sense. Future podcasts will actually take up some specific items. Yeah, and it won't be. This is probably the one of the rare times that we parse out the difference between socialist, libertarian, and libertarian. Correct. This is an effort of us to kind of explicate our perspectives, but that's not, this podcast is not about libertarianism versus social libertarianism or anything, or socialism. Yeah, I'm really glad you said that. Yeah. That's true. Because I think it's about something deeper, and that um, has to do with the, it, for those of us who belong to the, to the kingdom of God, for those of us who have, who believe that we have the Holy Spirit indwelled within us, what are the consequences of that in terms of the way that we engage in the in the public square? Yes. That's a really good way to put it. And I think one of the things that's important to both of us is the idea that we're not, we, we don't believe that the church or that members of the church are necessarily um, valuable as lawgivers. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Or lawmakers. Or lawmakers. Or law enforcers. Right. I don't mean that you can't be a Christian and do any of those things, but I don't know that that's what our Christianity is for. I think our faith is for changing the hearts of people. Yes, this is a place where we really come together and agree, is that the, the, the method and degree to which Christians should try to enforce Christianity through the state should be limited or non-existent. Yeah, and we're the ones that should limit it. And we're the ones who should limit it. We should be on the forefront of social change through our faith and through persuasion and through evangelism rather than through the s- structures of the state. Yeah, because the structures of the state are distributions of power, and I don't know that that engaging in or participating in that power distribution is actually the role of the church, at least biblically. Right. In, in, the, in the New Testament context, there doesn't seem to be a strong empathy. And I, I, I feel like I could proof text some stuff to argue against myself, but writ large, the, the New Testament seems to be dealing with the dispositions of the individual Christian and, their, and, and the way they engage in the state. And when Paul tells the church, to lift holy hands in prayer in First Timothy chapter two, he's telling the church the, the disposition. He's describing the disposition of those who are a me- who are members of the way and how they engage in political discourse or in the in the public square. Mm-hmm. And ours is uh, not so much finding ways to wield power, but finding ways to um, love the people around us. That ends up being subversive and powerful in its own way but I think it's powerful in changing people's hearts, not in creating a law code that keeps gay people from getting married, not in creating a law code that um, permits or does not permit divorce. Those those law codes ought to be irrelevant to us because let's say we, um, we create a law that says no adultery. We get it on the books. If I understand Jesus correctly in the Sermon on the Mount, we still have a problem. 
right? And the problem is their hearts haven't changed and that lust may still exist. And it's our responsibility to be the emissaries of a better way that involves changing somebody's heart. What happens to the law is less relevant to us mm-hmm. in our conversations, That's, which I think is unique in Christianity, unfortunately, or at least in Western Christianity. Yes, and so that brings up, as we, as we wind down here, what is this podcast about then? Well, I think there are questions to answer about what kind of citizens should Christians be that, that take up some of the questions that have been placed on the table by society. Hmm. I mean, we have good Christian friends turning to their churches to say, how should we feel about gay marriage? How should we feel about transgender bathroom laws? Mm. How should we feel about these things? And I think the churches are doing the best they can, and I think our question is, let's take a step back and, and ask, to what degree should we be asking these questions? To what degree should we participate? Or to what degree and when should we participate in state power structures anyway, mm-hmm. and to what degree does it matter? And, <clears throat> and have there been, uh, what does the Bible have to say about being a good citizen, mm-hmm. that we can um, extrapolate meaning for 2016, and how have people mis-extrapolated right. things? And, and what outcomes do we expect? That's right, that's right. So do we really expect to eradicate evil by passing laws? Yes. Or do we expect to be able to change hearts in people that to which to which end ultimately the laws become irrelevant? And there may be listeners. And if I understand Paul correctly, that's what he's going for. Well, there may be listeners who say yes, right, absolutely, and let's talk about it. I think it's worth investigating. I I'm think not. It's yeah, worth we have a bias. Right. <laughs> but I think it's worth investigating. So talk a little bit about what our next episode is going to be. This was actually what we called episode zero to introduce ourselves in the podcast. And our episode one uh, is going to be concerned with the questions, should Christians be concerned with the state at all? Should we even participate? Should we adopt some of the scholars and philosophers through our Christian history who have said, just divorce yourself and live in a commune? Right. Is there merit in that? And if there's, that's one extreme position. And the other extreme position, I think, is to try to build a theocracy. Mm-hmm. So where, how should we talk productively about that continuum? I think it's going to be a fascinating conversation. I'll bet we're going to be awesome. It, it is, it is interesting because because um, there there is a kind of bias that exists within Christianity in 2016 that of course we should do whatever we can to change the state, and that conversation um, is is richer than just what our current culture Christian culture would explicate. Right? It's been a there there have been a lot of there's been a lot of conversation. And that great conversation, I think, needs to be understood in a larger context. Okay. Reevaluated. Well, I'm Cole Bennett, and I'm on the right. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Scott Self, and I'm somewhere else. That's right. <laughs>